I started trading tapes a few years later. So when I was 12 years old, I started trading tapes and my friends, I, I was asking them to send me things and, and, you know, I would occasionally buy tapes, 10, $15 a pop. I did the HTML for John McAdam in exchange for tapes. And John had a very extensive collection. So I got a lot of stuff from him. My name is John McAdam. This is Stitch Wrestling, a weekly podcast where we focus on classic pro wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Today we're doing the 70s. More on that in a minute. But if you would like to follow me on Twitter or whatever they're calling it, uh, just search John McAdam, follow the guy with the Stitch Wrestling logo in his avatar. And with that, I want to bring on our occasional co-host, Steve Generelli. Steve, could you tell the world about our Facebook group? Oh yeah, the, the Facebook group is just dynamite. It, it can't get any better, but uh, it seems like it does get better. Uh, this week we had uh, Andrew Betts, who gave us a great uh, question about uh, which old school territory promoters paid the best and paid the worst. We had uh, uh, Eric Lee, who informed us about a new mural, uh, mural being painted in uh, in Amarillo, Texas, of the legendary Terry Funk. I saw that. That's mural. great. Really nice. And, and, and of course, the worst news possible, uh, John Weir and Matthew Dooley both posted about the unfortunate passing of Tim Wakefield. Yeah, that happened today. We're recording on a Sunday and, uh, it, there was a little bit of a controversy a couple of days earlier. Kurt Schilling, who has worn out all of his goodwill from the sock game of 2004, leaked the story against the wishes of the Wakefield family. And Schilling apologized. He said he didn't know, and I believe him, but still, Kurt's like, you know, kind of turned into a villain in Boston. But, yeah, Tim Wakefield, great guy. We're all going to miss him. Yeah, it, it's just such a tragic story. And uh, he he was really, um, um, you know, talk about underrated. I didn't know this until I just saw the little bio on him on the MLB Network, but he leads the Red Sox in innings pitched, and that's that's really impressive considering were, Clemens and all the other people. Yeah, especially you know going back to when pitchers pitchers were throwing over 300 innings per season. I mean, it's that's definitely changed. I mean, not to not to talk about Tim Wakefield too much. I remember when the Red Sox got him after the Pirates released him, and one of my friends was like. Um, well, if he's not good enough to pitch for the Pirates, you know, what's he going to do here? I'm like, yeah, like the Pirates know what they're doing. Give me a break. And that worked out really well. So it was it was a great pickup for the Red Sox. Definitely. And, yeah, we all big favorite around here. He's going to be missed. But with that, uh, I want to bring on someone who has been on Stick to Wrestling before, twice before, has done an excellent job. and It's just been too long. I want to bring on Vincent Waller. Vincent, welcome back. Greetings from Chicago. Good to be back. Thanks so much. Hey, Vincent, before I, I there's a couple of things I wanted to mention uh, that I wanted to mention before I brought you on. Last week or a couple of weeks ago, we had a segment and it was called For Review Purposes, right? And it was really good. We had Rose Harmon on. We sent her a copy of the show that we recorded a couple of days earlier. And, you know, she talked about it. Answered, I answered her questions. And then we didn't have it the next week. And we're going to have that sometimes, hopefully more often than not. It's just that when we record a few days before we release the show on Friday, we've got to 
have someone listen to the show, and then we have to coordinate a time where the person, myself, and Lou can all get together, and last week it just didn't happen. I'm hoping that this episode of Stick to Wrestling has that segment, but right now we just don't know. We haven't we haven't even recorded yet. So anyway, oh, and one last thing. Steve got me all excited yesterday. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, there's a podcast out there where Dutch Mantel talks about his favorite podcast, and you were mentioned. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. Dutch Mantel listens to Stick to Wrestling, and he talks about this being one of his favorite podcasts. No, that's not what happened. <laughs> what happened was that the uh, the person who runs the podcast, I did not catch his name, uh, solicited his listeners, make suggestions on what the best podcasts are. And We Stick to Wrestling got mentioned three times, okay? Someone said, no, John McAdams podcast. Then someone said, Sean Goodwin's podcast. Sean Goodwin, we love him to death, but he's been gone for over three years. And then Stick to Wrestling. And every time it came up, the the gentleman said, I've never heard of that. It's like, <laughs> I felt so bad that he doesn't have access to Google. But anyway, <laughs> so with that, I want to bring on our guest. We haven't had him on in a while. He's been on twice, and both times he's done a great job, Mr. Vincent Waller. Vincent, thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me back. Great to be back. Great to have you. And we are going to review two bits of WWF wrestling from 1978. We're going to talk a little bit about the October 21st, 1978 championship wrestling show. And then we're going to talk about the Madison Square Garden show that took place on the Monday, two days later, October 23rd, 1978. Vincent, this is way before your time, and I like it when I have that perspective from someone such as yourself. So someone who's never seen this stuff before, it's a a fresh look, so I I know you're going to kill it. Well, it's like I tell people when they mention something, oh, that's before my time. I'm like, did you never hear about Abraham Lincoln? Do you not know who George Washington is? It's like something could be before your time and you could educate yourself about it. Um, John, you also mentioned the extra inning segment. I really like the concept. I hope that to see that again, because I mean, I think that's a thing. That's a thing now. People like reactions. Let's say right now, if I shit the bed, I, I hope somebody comes on after and skewers me. And I think that'll be that'll be entertaining. <laughs> skewering is always entertaining and perhaps the person would say vincent waller i've never heard of him before and they don't have google but anyway (laughs) so let's talk about the october 21st 1978 championship wrestling now i was in new york visiting family uh when the show show aired on wor in new york the, the midnight show on saturday night and it's important to note that the show that aired in New York aired in Boston exactly two weeks later. So there was a gap between uh, the two cities. That, and, you know, so if I watch wrestling in New York, I got I came home with like, here's what's going to happen in two weeks. I could see the future. So uh, that's how I showed off with people. First match, Crazy Luke Graham against Jim Ray. And Jim Ray is a little bit important here, and I want to talk about him later. Now, Steve, you and I watched the championship wrestling uh, show from October 21st, 1978. Not a whole lot to say about this show. One thing, there were a couple things I wanted to mention. Bob Backlund did an interview uh, discussing the upcoming Madison Square Garden show. And one of the first things he said was, well, first of all, um, I want to, you know, 
with Bruno Sammartino luck in his match against superstar Billy Graham, I thought it was really cool. Just like a very understated thing that kind of put him over. Yeah, I enjoyed that too. Uh, it, it was just um, very natural and uh, no showbiz elements whatsoever. And um, you know, it was it was just nice that there was that kind of synergies. Uh, the current champion acknowledging the legendary former champion, and and there was very little other than Skolan being there, both the same manager. There was very little, uh, really zero interaction between Bruno and Backlund on screen. So um, that was a nice touch for the audience at home to kind of say, hey, they're maybe affiliated in some way. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Not sticking to wrestling, they had a, a, a commercial heart. The band was performing at the Palladium, and it was one of the worst commercials I've ever seen. <laughs> they give you the date, okay, of when they're performing, the two dates. They don't give you the time. They don't tell you where to buy tickets, and they say it's at the Palladium. I'm from New York. I don't know where the Palladium is. I had to look it up. <laughs> Just well, the I Palladium. Guess when, you've, when you've seen the two girls from Heart, uh, even the even the chunkier one, I mean, you're you're just gonna make a, a beeline to wherever they are. You know, you're gonna figure it out. I, I mean, yeah, I guess if you're like a, a hip, <laughs> cool New York person, you're gonna know where the Palladium is. But I mean, I, they didn't have Google back then, and I needed it to find out. Steve, is there anything you wanted to talk about before we mention the main event? Um, no, no. It was just your standard championship wrestling episode. Uh, nothing really stood out or nothing really unique about it. Until the main event, which was Bob Backlund and High Chief Peter Maivia against uh, Spiros Arion and Victor Rivera. Steve, I mean, it was a long time ago, and I certainly haven't ha – I don't have access to every episode of Championship Wrestling from 1978. But, I mean, you were a fan back then. You watched it. Before this show, did you have any clue whatsoever that Peter Maivia was turning? Well, I, I think you and I were, were both at the same formative stage. We were too young – Naive guys, we didn't know what was going on, like about angles and stuff like that. But um, so, so a very impressionable young guy. I had no clue what was going on, and I would say, like, if you if you asked me, say, like in 1984, 1985, hey, if you could go back and watch any one episode of, of old wrestling, what would you pick? I probably would have picked this episode just because. I love seeing Backlund and just get the beat hell out of him. Uh, Victor Rivera really lit him up with punches, and uh, Arian didn't do too much. But finally, when uh, when uh, Maivia blew his cool and knocked over Skoland, and you could see Maivia was very upset, it was just really a very exciting angle for that for that era. It was you don't see things like this on TV quite that very often. Not very often, to say the very least. I mean. It was the first turn. I knew turns existed because I read the magazines, but it was the first turn the WWF had ever done in my two and a half years as a wrestling fan. I would later joke that, you know, there were more turns on a Monday night in 1998 than the <laughs> WWF had, in, you know, in years. Uh, right. But for me, the turn just came so out of nowhere. There, as far as I know, there were no clues other than Peter Maivia uh, growing a villainous-looking mustache, which, you know, guy just grew a mustache. What do I know? And he and Skolan were arguing a little bit before the match, and then as the match went on, Maivia 
you know, wouldn't stay in the ring. Bob Backlund would get beat up. He'd tag, get the hot tag to Maivia. Maivia would go in the ring for like 20 seconds and tag back out. And he and Skolan started arguing. And Maivia, just out of nowhere, uh, not out of nowhere, but at this point, attacks Arnold Skolan. And Bob Backlund's taking a beating, so he can't help. It, it was just funny how they had set this whole thing up. I mean, I think it was maybe two tapings prior to this show where they just said, hey, uh, you know, uh, the veteran Peter Maivia is going to start teaming up with the world champion Bob Backlund, and they, you know, were all warm and fuzzy with each other. And then they had like another little interlude, and then all of a sudden there's this heat, there's this friction. Like you said, it was just like out of out of nowhere. We didn't see it coming, but uh, you know, I guess probably for the long long term fans, the John Jances and people out there, uh, they probably saw it coming because Blassie was there and Blassie was really the guy who would, you know, turn these wrestlers into the Benedict Arnolds, the turncoats and turn a popular fan favorite into a hated heel like he'd done it with Arian a few years earlier. And with Victor Rivera. And there was a little bit of foreshadowing there in hindsight. Mm-hmm. That it was, Vic, you know, Spiros Arion and Victor Rivera, two wrestlers that were once very popular in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. I need to go to the uh, Facebook group after the podcast comes out and see if anyone perhaps older than us noticed that there were any clues that this turn was coming. Uh, my take on it at the time was Bob Backlund was still a brand new WWF champion. He held the belt for uh eight months and he's already bored he's looking for a tag team partner <laughs> so he can beat the lumberjacks but I, one thing steve i wanted to throw in i really thought that my via needed to do something bad to arnold Skolan. like instead of just kicking him a few times and punching him a few times like he needed to do something bad he needs to bust Skolan open mm-hmm. as the heels held bob backland back as bob is witnessing this and he is helpless to intervene like you know i i thought they need there needed to be a little bit more i guess the only reason and maybe they didn't do that i mean this seemed to be the, the first real angle of the backland era per se and uh you know backland had been a champion he had been really kind of beating all of the old bruno opponents uh he had beaten uh superstar he had beaten koloff he's in the process of going to face ernie ladd then the next show and he had beaten arian already so uh, George Steele, yeah. So so he had really proven that he could beat the Bruno challengers, and now it was like uh, I'm sure in the elder Vince McMahon's mind, we have to get him in a new program, somebody new, somebody different, and they decided to go with a guy who was already with the promotion, and rather than just kind of phase out uh, Peter Maivia who had been around for a while, they decided to turn him heel, and uh, and like you said, but other than the fancy uh, mustache and wearing the purple trunks which were kind of disco style trunks uh there was really nothing different about them but uh uh you know as a as a kid watching at the time this this was very uh, compelling to me Uh, and i I get the impression you felt the same way and uh, it really uh, did good good box office and it was really good uh uh, exciting tv watching this feud and watching everything culminate Steve, I've mentioned this on the show before, but it bears repeating for the newer listeners, and that is that, you know, this turn took place at about 12.55 a.m. on (laughs) Sunday in, you know, early, early Sunday morning, uh, October 22nd, and I could not get to sleep 
until like four or five in the morning because I was so jazzed by it. I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Peter Maivia turned bad guy. It came to me, you know, as a complete surprise. And yeah, that's how pumped I was on my, my Aunt Pat's couch. But anyway, <laughs> let's talk about the, the Madison Square Garden show that took place on the 23rd. First match, Johnny Rods against Dell Adams. Dell Adams was on the the championship wrestling show on the 21st. Wrestling is Jimmy Ray, but I guess you can get your name changed over the weekend in New York. Uh, <laughs> Vincent, your thoughts on this match? A couple of notes. Um, it's not necessarily specific to the match. I thought the video audio quality was really good. I, I like that you can hear like you know specific things from the audience that they're shouting out, and you kind of get the sense of like unwashed masses this is not like a disney <laughs> fight audience it has like a bunch of signs and a bunch of cues and then they're not like have a lot of dogs it's just people just off the street that they're there to watch a fight um and you get the sense of the importance of the opening match you have like the the leadoff hitter aspect that these are two guys that are going at it and they give you the sense of a real sporting event i mean i feel like they were working hard and in some sense it was the best match of the night. These are the, they're, you know, you've got Johnny Rods and this unknown Mr. Adams. Um, and they, they seem to both be working hard and, and the audience was over just for the sense of effort. You also had Howard Cassell version of Vince McMahon, which I liked <laughs> where it seemed like he was trying to give an actual sports like, uh, call. And it was just, uh, I, I thought it was a, a very exciting, um, very exciting match to, to lead off the night. You know, Vincent, before we get to Steve, I wanted to ask you about this. This was in my notes, and I wanted to ask you. I mean, this one of the really cool things about these shows, and this goes for, like, the all-star wrestling shows on, on Peacock, but especially this one, you get a glimpse of a New York wrestling crowd in 1978. You get the plaid jackets. <laughs> you get the comb-overs. You get all of that stuff. Like, I've actually been to New York in 1978, you know, both Queens and Manhattan. But even, you know, it really took me back and it, it must have really given you a look of, you know, wow, this is what life was like 45 years ago. Yeah, exactly. I, I liked it. I mean, I, I think there was a there was a sense of, of realness that we just can't recapture today. And I also, you know, with, with the hindsight now, we've got, you know, mixed martial arts. We have a sense of what works in a fight. Johnny Rods doesn't look like he'd be out of place in a real fighting event. I mean, he seemed like he was in good shape. He seemed like he was working hard. Um, as a side note, there was a point in which he gets chastised for a closed fist punch. And I, I've never understood in wrestling why you can crow cop guys, you know, head off or you can curb stomp them. But a closed fist punch is a, is a no, no. <laughs> yeah. The flat of the foot is okay, but the point of the toe was illegal, which you're right. is is absolutely crazy. Steve, can you share your thoughts on the opener? Um, and I think Vincent really nailed it. I mean, uh, it was uh, just, you know, just kind of let the crowd file in. Anybody showing up late, uh, just give them something to view while people are filing in. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, um, you know, that future hit in the early 80s by uh, Dexie's Midnight Runners uh, could have been about uh, uh, Jimmy Ray or Johnny Ray. Uh, maybe they changed <laughs> the name so he wouldn't get a cut of their proceeds. Ah, but, but, uh solved. There we go. But, but, uh, no, no, that's all I have to say about that match. Yeah. I mean, to me, if I were watching this match 45 years ago, 
And I say this all the time. I'd be like, wow, Johnny Rodge, who I have seen lose on television by this point at least literally a hundred times. Okay. And that's just over two and a half years. He was a mainstay in the WWF. And, and yeah, Vincent, he had the reputation as a guy who could uh, turn uh, an opponent into a pretzel if he wanted to. <laughs> And you're just like, you know, yeah, I think this might be Johnny's night or, you know, maybe Dell Adams has a chance. But, yeah, and Johnny Rods won. And it was, it was good for me. Good to see. What was also interesting is that at any sign of high flying, if somebody was starting to go to the top rope, the crowd started to pop. And, you know, good luck getting that kind of reaction today. No, absolutely not. You know, it's we've all seen it already. And. I'm on record saying that I think the, the 2023 wrestlers just take too many reckless chances out there. And it's someone getting hurt is just waiting, hurt and hurt bad, like draws is just waiting to happen. Uh, next matchup is Baron Mikel Cicluna against SD Jones. They announce SD is 243 pounds and Cicluna at 275. I'm not sure what planet uh, they're weighing these guys on because <laughs> SD, they're, you know, Cicluna's got a couple of inches on him, but Cicluna is kind of a flabby old guy at this point, and SD Jones was jacked up. Vincent, I, I, I don't think you've ever seen this match uh, before reviewing it for Stick to Wrestling. What'd you think? Well, before we get to that, can we talk about some stuff that happened in the interim? Because they had like a little ceremony there with Gorilla Monsoon. With Monsoon, sure. I looked it up. Gorilla Monsoon was born in June 19th, 1937, so that made him 41 years old there, which is like a surprising, you know, in terms of like the way people age back then versus the way people age now. Because <laughs> he had this dad-like quality. He looks like he could be my dad. You know, my dad's actually much better shape than him. It's almost 70, but he just, you know, heavy and just kind of settled into his old age. And then separate from that, you had Chuck Wepner in the audience, which was interesting, was like when they were, you know, showing him and there was no reference to the whole, you know, Andre match from two years before. So it was just interesting. It was like Wepner angling for something. Were they thinking that something could come out of that? Something fun to speculate about. But turning to Baron versus uh, SD Jones, I just kind of consider it the stereotypical 1970. This is what we don't like about, you know, 70s WWF. Um, well, we hear about two plotting fat guys. So I, I, I didn't really enjoy this match. Um, and this is why, where, you know, the other day when we had a few months ago, you had me on for the 82 Georgia and I said, this is just superior. This is why I say that's superior to this. It was just, you know, on the, on the, on the bad side, it was two plotting fat guys trying not to hurt each other and looking like they weren't trying to hurt each other. I didn't really enjoy the match, but on the positive side, at the same time, I like the fact that it was like, there's no storyline. It's just two guys trying to win a match. And if you want to get up and cook some food or, or get a restroom break, it's the same thing that we enjoy about baseball where it's like, okay, this is kind of a nothing game, but I can walk away and just, you know, come back and, and just understand what's going on versus today's product where it's kind of demanding your attention. And I actually did go back and watch today's product. Just I watched the most recent Raw recently in preparation for this episode, so I couldn't just—I wouldn't be accused of uh, saying that I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm saying these things without watching it, and it's just overproduced junk. So I enjoy that aspect of there's a calmness to the '70s wrestling that kind of reminds me of like meaningless baseball. I think the baseball analogy is a really good one. You know, Steve, before I hand this over to you, uh, Chuck Wepner. I saw ESPN did a 30 for 30 on Chuck Wepner, which was really good. I saw it like 10 years ago. 
And then after it, ESPN put on the Muhammad Ali versus Chuck Wepner match, I think from 1974, 1975. That Chuck Wepner fought dirty, man. He fought really, really dirty. Uh, if you want to check that out, I'm sure Ali Wepner is out there somewhere. Like by the end of the first round, he must have tried to rabbit punch Muhammad Ali like eight times and Ali was getting sick of it and he was retaliating. But uh, Steve, your thoughts on this match? Well, I also wanted to add uh, about Chuck Wepner, supposedly that Rocky Balboa character for the Rocky movie was loosely based on on him. And in that documentary that you mentioned from from ESPN, uh, Vince is in there and they did have a a brief blurb of um, they showed a brief clip of the uh, Shea Stadium show with uh, Andre and Wepner and what happened. and, uh, And Vince comes off really, really well on that. Uh, and I thought, uh, to, to piggyback on Vincent's comment, I, I thought that, that, uh, little ceremony for juvenile diabetes was really, um, interesting because, uh, poor Monsoon, uh, he was, he was probably, I'm, I'm guessing, but maybe around 400 pounds. And, and by the time he, he got to be the more familiar announcer sidekick of Bobby Heenan years later, God, he must have lost, I'm imagining like 100 to 120 pounds to, and get down to, you know, as big as he was with, with Heenan. He was, he was still very large then. So I thought that was interesting. But about, uh, SD Jones against Baron Mikhail Sakluna, it really got my researching, uh, fingers going. Um, this was the third match of 10 matches that they had at Madison Square Garden with each other. The very, the very last ten. one. Yeah, 10. Can you believe it? Yeah, they, they wrestled, uh, the final time was January of 83. Uh, SD won the last four. I've got two more notes in the match. I mean, there's, uh, one of my notes says racism headbutts. So you've got of course. Jones giving some headbutts where the crowd is just tuned to realize that he's got the headbutt advantage by the naturally thicker skull, quote-unquote. <laughs> uh, that, that, it's um, so horrible because the, the, the thicker skull thing is actually a reference to a smaller brain thing. It's disgusting. Right. Yeah, no, it's just it's amazing how, you know, pro wrestling is always like about 100 years late in getting the memo of, the rest of society. Um, and then in addition, there's a spot where Baron gives this kind of discus punch and, you know, just misses and SD Jones ducks it and the crowd pops for it. But it's just a little obvious that, you know, SD Jones knew to duck that. And it's like, he put more stank on that than any other part of his offense in the entire match. And it's kind of business exposing kind of works in wrestling somehow. You know, the guy goes to throw the guitar or he's throwing the chain or something and he knows that he's going to miss and he can put all the stank into it. And then the crowd has got this, ooh, if that had connected. <laughs> but at the same time, it's kind of business exposing when it's like it tends to show that the rest of your offense is just far off the mark in terms of the effort that you're putting into it. You know, where you never are going to connect something that's got that much, you know, stank on it. I have always said that, especially, you know, the the pre-Hogan era, what am I talking about, especially during the Hogan era, but the pre-Hogan era, you just had to turn off your brain. And, you know, just when the guy gets whipped into the ropes, he somehow miraculously bounces back and does not put up any defenses. Well, I think the Irish whip goes back to the 30s, actually, right? Isn't it whipper, I mean, 40s or something? Maybe 30s and 40s, my understanding. 
And then my final note on the match is that, of course, it's a draw as if a clean decision here would hurt either guy. <laughs> Perhaps I say this too much, but whenever we, whenever we had a match like this, like SD Jones or Steve Travis or whoever against Johnny Rods, Baron Mikel Cicluna, you know, guys on that level, I was always every bit as excited to see that as I was the main event because usually I had an idea who was winning the main event. Okay. It was going to be Bob Backlund. It was either going to be Bob Backlund winning or Bob Backlund losing on a, a DQ account out a uh, referee stops for blood. And then they'd be back the next month and Bob Backlund would win. I mean, but a match like this, I didn't know who was going to win. And I always enjoyed that. As far as the quality of this match, even my 1978 standards, it was terrible. I tried to keep things positive here on Stick to Wrestling. Like, you know, old WWF wrestling has its charm, but this match was patently awful, and both guys seemed like they were legitimately gassed uh, by the time it was over, by the time we got to that 20-minute time limit. Right, even grading it on a curve, it still fails. Yeah, I mean, it was just way too long. And to me, if you're going to have a match like that, and you're right, Vincent, you made a joke about it, I think, but I mean, it it wouldn't have hurt either guy to lose this match. I think you're just kind of showing the audience by the way it's booked that, hey, these guys are on the same level. And, you know, but like I said, it just went on too long and, and it wasn't any good. But if I if I could just also add, I mean, like even watching modern, you know, again, I watched the most recent Raw and it's like the opening match had the same level of like 50 50 booking mm-hmm. and neither guy was that much better than the other. And it was just kind of eye rolling and just kind of a you know similar waste of time as much as things change, you know, the more they say the same. Yeah, that's a big problem I have with the current product, and that is that, you know, Unlike this match, every match has to have a storyline, and that's just not the way a real sport goes. Not that, I mean, wrestling stopped pretending to be a real sport a long time ago, but this at least had a, an air of authenticity to it. Like it was, you know, people were going to Madison Square Garden, it was like they were going to see the boxing matches, except they're going to see the wrestling matches and they're predetermined. Now the next match, Vincent, I really want to get your take on um, it's the Lumberjacks, the WWF Tag Team Champions, against Chief J. Strongbow and Peter Maivia. And I'll, it, it sounds to me like you didn't know what went on two days earlier. Correct. So like, one of my first thoughts was, how did Strongbow and Maivia not figure out beforehand who's going to start the match? So they had this, you know, silly conversation about who's going to start. They're having some dispute about it. And then my other thought was, how are the lumberjacks the heels here? Like obviously they're the heels as far as the crowd is concerned, but they don't actually do anything heelish here. Uh no, not yet. Not coming not right away. Also Well, I mean um, certainly like, you know, strong I mean a strong bull gets abandoned by his partner, but I mean that's just that's just how the the ball has is played, right? And as as a, as a sporting man, you're gonna try to take advantage and try to get the win, but it's just funny how we take for take it for granted the lumberjacks are the heels. Uh, that's a good point. I mean, you know, the Lumberjacks, hey, we had no say in what's going on between you guys. And just because, you know, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing and you're not, don't blame us. Um, but it, the what was on Peacock, and this show is available on Peacock, 
I have had most of this show for God, about 25, at least 25 years. And what's not shown on Peacock is the Lumberjacks are in the ring, and then Strongbow comes out by himself, and then maybe two minutes later, Peter Maivia kind of smiles and, you know, shuffles onto the ring very slowly, and the two of them, and the two start arguing. So you get the idea that Strongbow has not seen Maivia all day, or at least hasn't seen him since the Backlund turn, and now they have a confrontation. And what happened was, you know, they, they argue for about a minute or two. Uh, Strongbow goes to start the match and Maivia just clocks him from behind before he even makes contact with one of the Luke Yukon lumberjacks. And Maivia walks off to the dressing room once again, very slowly showing everyone that yes, I am now indeed a bad guy. Steve, your thoughts on this? <laughs> well, well, just to take it back in time, uh, like you said, like you said, John, you've owned this match on VHS probably for 30 years. I can remember this must have been like in the 80s sometime uh, when there were different uh, guys selling old video VHS tapes of wrestling. I think I got this from Steve Friedlander, who was one of those guys that had a huge catalog of tapes. And I ordered this show. And and, and as we like to say in the world of uh, tape trading, uh, this show had been stepped on a few times. Uh, it wasn't the best quality. But uh, but yeah, I, I thought this match was hilarious, just, for, just from the standpoint of uh, the way yeah, maybe it turns on him and just abandons him and he gets the strong world gets the snot beat right out of him. And, uh, yeah, I, I would say in retrospect, um, you know, Brian Solomon or even, uh, at, uh, Tim Hornbreaker write another wrestling book. Peter Maivia, I think would be a great uh, subject for a book. I think he's a really compelling figure in wrestling. I mean, uh, not only his stellar career, but being in the James Bond movie, uh, his life as a Paramount chief in Hawaii and, uh, and also the, what happened with him as a promoter and then getting cancer and dying at a very young age. I think it, I think it would be a very compelling uh, book, uh, to read about his life. Maivia, I mean, supposedly there was a lot more to High Chief Peter Maivia than, than meets the eye as far as him being a guy you wouldn't want to mess with in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, but yeah, Peter right. Maivia and Chief J. Strongbow had been teaming for a long time. They had gotten multiple title shots in different cities against uh, Toru Tanaka and Mr. Fuji. And now they're together once again to challenge the Yukon Lumberjacks, and it all goes sideways. Steve, I really think the Yukon Lumberjacks were a bit of a joke. Um, <laughs> like, okay, I had been following wrestling since 1976. Now, when they put the executioners together, you could picture a world where, okay, Captain Lou Albano finds two noteworthy professional wrestlers, puts them under masks, and shoves them out there as the executioners. No one knows who they are. But now you've got this tag team, these two guys, no one knows who they are, and now they're the Lumberjacks. And the story is that Lou Albano goes to Canada and finds these two crazy dudes and makes them pro wrestlers. And to me, that really exposes the business. Like, if I'm a wrestling fan in Florida or North Carolina, and I get a wrestling magazine, and I see the Yukon Lumberjacks are now the WWF Tag Team Champions. To me, it makes the, the Federation look like a joke. 
Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I buy into that. I mean, they, they were both capable wrestlers. It wasn't like they, they were. were bad wrestlers. I mean, they had the size and they're imposing and, uh, Captain Lou did all the speaking for them. I guess from the, from the promotion standpoint, it's like, Hey, we're aiming this stuff, uh, it, uh, you know, children who are gullible and, and, uh, low IQ adults who are, who are also gullible. So. I so mean, what they you're just, telling me is I, I yeah. looked too much into this as a 13-year-old. Just a, just a little bit. Okay. But but I didn't just come up with this. I, I was saying this in 1978. <laughs> like, you know, this is wrong. And that's not a knock on Scott Irwin or right. Zaranoff LeBeau, I believe the other guy's name was. That's, it's a knock on the WWF that they did this, but it worked. So I guess who cares? Well, like, like you said, I mean, just having the endorsement of Albano, that's all you needed to see that he, they were going to be the next big tag team in his army of tag teams. And, uh, you know, just him being attached to it, you knew they were a winning team. You know, I, I needed you in my life in 1978, Steve, <laughs> the guy who just says, John, it's wrestling, relax. But anyway, <laughs> next. Well, up, if I can add, I mean, seeing them yeah. years later in isolation, they seem fine. I mean, look at. Strong bow and Maivia right there. They've got some sizable guts on them. Like they seem like they they just had had Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Compared to you know the lumberjacks look fine and their work didn't seem out of place. And I actually well, did remember seeing a promo from years ago where they basically said we just want to make some you know money to be able to live in the woods the way that we want to be. And they <laughs> kind of came off in, in the way that like you know heels that believe that they're right. So I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm with uh, Steve on this. I, I thought living in the woods was, was cheap comparing to living in other places. But what do I know? But all right. So two to one. And, and you guys are right. I mean, at the end of the day, it worked. The fans accepted it. You know, and I'm the, th- the 13 year old going, OK, their names are Eric and Pierre. They don't have last names. This is not sports in my in my view. So, you know, this is what happens when I grow up. Grew up watching, you know, baseball, hockey, and boxing, and and I'm trying to compare wrestling to those things. It doesn't work. Next up, we have Crusher Blackwell against Tony Russo. I did not think this was a good match, and it's a squash match happening in the middle of a Madison Square Garden show. But Vincent, please share your thoughts. I guess my uh, couple thoughts not related to the match is that at some point around this time, it was noted that there's, you know, 22,000 in the audience, which would be a good crowd today. Um, and, and Vince McMahon was already using the sports entertainment moniker, which yeah, is really interesting mm-hmm. way back then. But um, as far as Blackwell, I mean, this, it's just it's just like one of those things where it's like, you know, Madison Square Garden and the WWF at the time used to get folks at their prime. And this is kind of in the middle of his career. He's already kind of seasoned enough, but he's still moving really well. I mean, it just makes you wonder, it's like that, you know, was he make, making a lot of money that night? You know, it seems like one of those things that he would have told his kids or whatever years later, I was, you know, a featured event at Madison Square Garden. And it seemed like he had a bit of a run there at the time. Um, but as far as like the match itself, it didn't seem like it really necessarily played to his strengths. It just kind of looked like two little short fat guys out there. Yeah. It wasn't particularly notable. Steve, your thoughts? I guess, you know, I'm kind of in that same boat. I mean, I think Tony Russo did his job well, just moving around enough and taking the bumps. And, um, you know, Blackwell, uh, 
you know, like I said, in the older days, uh, anybody that was a super, super heavyweight like him, other than Monsoon, they would usually probably wear like bib overalls to the ring. Here he's wearing that kind of a weird, uh, gold and black, uh, full body suit, uh, kind of, kind of like what, uh, guys in the future like Bam Bam Bigelow or One Man Gang might wear. You know, it, it was what it was. I mean, they, they had some movement in the match and, uh, Blackwell went over and he was very impressive, uh, moving very good for a, a super heavyweight. Uh, but, but nothing really ever came of his push. I mean, he had a one, one off with Backlund at the Spectrum and that was about it. I have always wondered what happened with Crusher Blackwell here. Now let's go to 1984. They announce on TNT, uh, Vince McMahon announces on TNT that, you know, Crusher Blackwell will be here next week and then he never showed up. And the story that has always gone around that I believe is that Crusher Blackwell showed up. He was waiting in line to do his interviews and he got fed up and walked out and was never seen in the WWF again. In 1978, Blackwell returned after a two-year absence. This time, instead of Fred Blassie being his manager, he is with the Grand Wizard. If there was ever a Captain Lou Albano guy, it's Crusher Blackwell, but <laughs> they missed on that one twice. And they, they seem to be building him up to a series against Bob Backlund and then maybe a one-off with Andre the Giant. And it never happened. He he was gone like almost as quickly as he left. And Based on the story in 1984, I, I have the feeling that just something happened that, Steve, that he just, you know, something happened and his his push got short-circuited. Yeah, I, I don't know what it was. I don't know what it could have been. Maybe he got into some kind of illegal thing with the police or something. Who knows? Um, but but I will tell you one uh, kind of funny story slightly connected to this. Like you said, with him at the TV taping, supposedly he got fell asleep waiting and waiting many, many, many hours for his turn. There was a rumor or a story out there on an old shoot interview with uh, none other than Colonel Buck Robley, who is certainly uh, not one of the most reliable guys. But but he said he and Brody went to a WWF taping and the oh, same right. Thing, yeah. And he said the same thing happened to them, that they waited and waited and waited. And then they got so bored that they got up and left. And that's why you never saw them on WWF. Oh, that, that we missed out on that the <laughs> Hulk Hogan series that, <laughs> come on, <laughs> right? Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I, like I said, I always wondered what happened with, with Blackwell because what, you know, what we saw didn't mesh with what I think we should have seen. Then again, uh, we had Ernie Ladd wrestling Backlund tonight, and then we went straight to the three match series against Peter Maivia, definitely a grudge series, and then it was Greg Valentine's turn, so I'm not sure, quite sure how we wedge Crusher Blackwell in there. Same thing with Victor Rivera. I always wondered why he never got a, a Madison Square Garden match against Backlund, but where were you going to put it? Now we get to the first of really what's a double main event. It's Bob Backlund against Ernie Ladd. Uh, Ernie Ladd is huge. He, Bob Backlund's a big guy and Ernie Ladd towers over him. World title match. Vincent, what did you think? The more I see of Ernie Ladd, the more I appreciate him. I mean, he was, you know, obviously a legendary football player and very surprising when I look into his history and see that I think his debut was like 1963. So a full decade before this, and apparently he had had a, a world title match against Luthez and, 
all this stuff in his first year. I can't, I, I've never seen any 1960s or any lab, but I can only imagine how well he was moving because he actually still was, uh, he waited till his knee injury to wrestle. He was already wrestling when he was still in his prime. And here I thought he was moving surprisingly well, like even the way he kind of walks out, you know, kind of pumping his arms. He's moving really well. And I, I thought he had like, you know, now he's got the wisdom of having 10 years in the business or 14, 15 years. He's at, he would be 40, 40 years old by this point. But I mean, it had the trappings of a big fight. It had a big fight feel, the way he was kind of hopping and warming up and, you know, the way that, you know, a boxer might before the match. And the same with Bob Backlund, like, you know, like the whole, the build up to the match. I mean, his actual in-ring performance itself, you don't really notice it. You know, he's not great, but you don't notice it because he's got these great facial expressions. He's a big guy. He's huge. You know, he's very athletic at this point still. He's not as slowed down as he would be by the early 80s. I thought it was a really uh, great match. And then when you combine that with the kind of promos he was laying down, I, I posted one in the group not long ago where he was kind of giving this with his kind of shoot interview cadence where he's just kind of tearing everybody apart in the WWF. Um, I thought it was very exciting. Yeah, I, I always loved Ladd's interviews. Steve, your thoughts on Bob Backlund versus Ernie Ladd? Uh, I've seen the match before. I thought it was probably better than anybody gives it credit for. I mean, it's, I've rarely have heard people say like God, Ernie Ladd against Bob Backlund was really good, but for what it was, I think it was a decent match. Uh, I thought it was funny near the beginning of the match when they were actually doing a little bit of wrestling with each other. You could see, uh, at first I thought it was some kind of a weird, uh, stain or something. Uh, Backlund's trunks or, or his, his trunks were pulled back and he's wearing some kind of, uh, brown underwear, almost like a brown panties or something. It was really weird, uh, that part of the match. Uh, but, uh, as the match continued, uh, I, I really appreciated Lad's, uh, old school, uh, uh, storytelling, you know, doing the, the heelist stuff like, uh, you know, reaching into his trunks and like acting like you had a weapon and talking to the grand wizard. And I mean, there's all the little things he did that made him, uh, like a great heel, kind of like the old fashioned stuff that would get the, the crowd riled up, uh, but still being very athletic, like, uh, Vincent said. And I thought it was funny too when the referee, I think it was John Stanley, uh, he was counting his shoulders down on the mat when Backlund wasn't even on top of him. I mean, how can you pin a guy if you don't even have your your uh, if your body on top of him? You had him on like a little leg lock or something like that. But and I thought Steve, it was a good did match. You know, did you notice early on in the match where the, he he goes for the handshake and it's just a clean handshake? And yes. but it was like it was really slick because it, it was like he was setting up for something later on where he goes to offer the handshake and I think Backlund doesn't take it because right. he already was thinking two steps ahead. So I thought yeah. that was really subtle. So, so, John, what did you think of the match yourself? Well, the match itself, I, I watched the match twice, okay? the first, Now, I, I've seen it before, but I haven't seen it in a long time, okay? The first time I saw the match, I was like, you know what? That's a good match. That's way better than I thought it would be. Uh, you know, not an all-time classic, but a, a really good match. And then I watched it. I watched the last two matches of this show again earlier today. And I, I, I have always had a theory that the WWF, the way they made their matches look good, is they had a whole lot of bad matches on <laughs> before the big matches. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's almost like you're starving, and you haven't had good food for a while. And this happened to me once. And finally, you and your friend, you know, we were, this is when we were on a Smoky Mountain wrestling trip back in 1994. No, this was 95. 
and we just got really unlucky with the food. Everywhere, <laughs> everywhere we went, the food sucked. <laughs> I, and I mean sucked. Like, how do you mess up pizza that bad, right? Mm-hmm. So finally, we go to McDonald's. And it was like the most wonderful meal I've ever had. <laughs> it was the greatest burger, fries, and a, and a soft drink ever. And a, part of my, my thought is that that's what the WWF did. It's like, you know, they'll give you McDonald's and you'll love it because they've starved you to death. <laughs> Not saying this was a terrible match. It wasn't. It was a good match. I would probably give it like a star and three quarters. Not one of Bob's best matches. You know, both Ernie Ladd and Bob Backlund were great athletes in their own right. I mean, you have to be a great athlete to pay, play defensive line for in the NFL like Ernie Ladd did. And Bob Backlund has his amateur background. But sometimes even just doing simple things like running the ropes, both guys looked a little bit clumsy. It, it, it took me a little bit by surprise. But like I said, not a terrible match at all. I want to talk a little bit about Ernie Ladd. In the WWF in 1978, I learned this in the days before we recorded. Okay, I, I looked it up and I was I was very surprised. Ernie Ladd, in my view, was still one of the top heels in the sport on October 23rd, 1978. So I'm thinking we're at least going to get one rematch with Ernie Ladd. That's that's how it worked with the top guys. No, Bob Backlund pins him clean in the middle which almost never happened, and there's no need for a rematch. Ernie Ladd returned a month later to face Andre the Giant, and then a month after that, he returned to face Larry Zbysko. Now, I know WrestlingData.com, I know they, they don't have the complete information. You know, they're missing information, and that doesn't mean it's bad. I mean, they, they have more than anyone else. But unless they're missing something, the, the only time that Ernie Ladd wrestled in the WWF in 1978 was A, at the TV tapings, and B, those three times at Madison Square Garden. I checked the history of WWE. He did not wrestle in Boston. He did not wrestle in Baltimore. He did not wrestle in Philly. He just showed up on TV and left. And then when I checked uh, wrestling data, there were no other WWF matches. He was wrestling in tri-states. He was wrestling in Florida, he was wrestling in Georgia, and he was making sporadic appearances in the WWF. And as far as I know, TV plus those three matches is literally it. I mean, it, I feel it, like it, there's, a, there's, there's a story there. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think he was a, a major star, like you said, and I think he could, at that point in his career, because he was such a big, big star, I think he kind of pick and choose. And, and I do remember one of the subsequent times he came back, it seemed like he had a feud just with Tony Atlas. He didn't go after the title again, but he was just feuding with Tony Atlas, like in Baltimore and certain cities. So I know what you mean, John. It's it's not anything normal for the WWF to do business like this, but it just seemed like with him, he would just work certain cities, and that was it. Yeah, I mean, he would work. It felt like he had the ability, the leverage to tell Vince McMahon senior you know hey i'll work madison square garden but i'm not working the total ice arena you know i've got <laughs> other things other places i can be making money and being good for him final match on this John, i'm sorry if I, could, if I can add one more one or two notes yeah, about this match I, I thought there was a nice spot where the lad kind of body slammed kind of just launched back one across the ring it was kind of yes. impressive looking you know he didn't do a lot of strong man spots but i also thought you know you kind of get a sense of the 
subtle charisma of Bob Backlund in this match. He's just kind of like a genuine sportsman. He's just, you know, he's good at what he's good at. Although in terms of, you know, you mentioned some awkwardness on his part. I thought the kicks that he was throwing were really awkward. It was like a guy that's never practiced throwing kicks. Yeah. You know, and it made logical sense that he's a big guy. You want to chop down the big tree. You want to kick, you know, take him out from the legs. But he just, you know, a movie tie practitioner, he was not. Yeah. So, and then my my last note was was um, there's nothing golden boy about Arnold Scotland. Not a not he doesn't have blonde hair and he's certainly not, not a boy. <laughs> you know, I I think Vincent, and this is why I I wanted to have you on this episode talking about this stuff. You mentioned that Bob Backlund seemed like a genuine sportsman, which had I mean by the Hulk Hogan era that was gone in wrestling, but that is how Bob Backlund got over. He came across as a genuine sportsman, an authentic uh, wrestler. And by the way, I wanted to throw this in too. This is in my notes. I, you know, there are people, I used to wonder, why is Arnold Skoland even out there with Bob Backlund? What's the point of all of this? And I now appreciate that because Skoland, I think, had a lot to do with Bob Backlund getting over because Skoland was Bruno Sammartino's manager. And now he's managing Backlund and it gives Backlund that air of authenticity. Like, wait a minute, this guy's for real if he's being managed by Arnold Skolan. You know who else Arnold Skolan managed? Bruno Sammartino, and that's it. Steve, what were your thoughts on that? No, and I, I, I concur completely with that. And, and I do, I do want to say on a slightly different subject for uh, our fans at home listening, um, for, for whatever reason, um, Peacock, only showed us like four or five matches from that card. There were a whole bunch of other matches that weren't even on the, on Peacock, but happened that night in the garden. I just wanted to mention them very briefly. Uh, Ivan Koloff beat Tony Guerrilla. Larry Zabisco beat Spiros Arian on a DQ. Victor Rivera beat Dominic Danucci and Dino Bravo beat Luke Graham. So for whatever reason, Peacock is kind of uh, picking and choosing matches for us. I'm hoping that one day, uh, much like they're adding uh, episodes of Championship Wrestling, I, I hope they add uh, missing shows like these upcoming shows with the Backlund against uh, Maivia. And I hope that they one day maybe show more complete cards rather than just like five matches out of a complete card. Steve, I had to throw this in. The tape that was circulating back in the 80s and 90s of this event right. also had those matches omitted. Oh, so, really? Yeah. So I have the, like, what I had on tape in, I don't know, 1987 or whatever is what Peacock had. Hmm. So I have the feeling there's a relation there. I don't know. But right. Vincent, you know, we were talking about Chuck Wepner earlier and how the 30 for 30 had footage of his match against Andre the Giant from Shea Stadium 1976. That makes me think that that entire Shea Stadium show is out there and please if anyone from peacock or wwe is listening please get that out there i mean i'm almost 60 and that show happened when i was a little kid you know the people who would appreciate that aren't that show aren't going to be around that much longer so with that we have the final match not of the night but that we have available on peacock bruno sammartino returns after a long absence again his first madison square garden match in over a year since August 1977 against former WWF champion superstar Billy Graham. Vincent, your thoughts on this match? 
Well, overall, I loved it. I mean, the crowd was hot for it. Um, Superstar was still superstar here. It's one of these things where it's like, if you listen to Hulk Hogan, you know, Andre died the day after WrestleMania three. And, you know, similarly, Superstar, quote unquote, if you listen to Gorilla Monsoon, basically died. And if you listen to <laughs> Superstar himself, right, he basically said that he went into exile after that loss. But he actually stood around for a, a number of months and he still had the Superstar gimmick. He still had enough hair on top of his head. <laughs> he still was Superstar Billy Graham for a number of months after he lost the title to Bob Backlund. So this was kind of, it had a very special feel because you had the living legend Bruno San Martino coming back to kind of avenge his loss against Superstar, which if I look at the at the match listings, there was a smattering of matches that they had, but this was the first one at MSG. So it was just, it, it was special. You know, the fact that it went to an actual somewhat decisive finish was really cool. I liked the finish. I, I thought it actually was kind of, even though maybe the crowd wanted to see more blood, it was you know, realistic in the sense that, you know, nowadays, like, you know, and for the last 30 or 40 years, somebody's beaten down and they're, and you couldn't have high flying moves. You couldn't even have a, the macho man flying elbow. If you can't have a guy so incapacitated that he's laying there long enough to take it. But at the end here, he's kind of not responding to the strikes that are coming from Bruno and the ref is like, okay, you know, he's checking on him. You're not intelligently defending yourself. I'm going to end the match right here. However, a couple of things to kind of take notches down from it. I thought I never liked the test of strength spot. I think it's kind of bad psychology personally, because, you know, it's been said, like, I think, you know, Bruce Lee famously said, you can have a thousand moves, but I, I'm going to fear the guy that practices one move a thousand times. Like the test of strength never leads to the end of the match. It's not even a setup to the end of the match, right? It's not like a move that's going to win you the fight. So I think it's just kind of a waste of time. There's also a move at the one hour and 21 minute mark on Peacock where Superstar is bending uh, Bruno's knee in the way that it's supposed to bend. <laughs> that was just kind of business exposing. Um, there was a spot where Bruno, uh, Vince McMahon says, well, if Bruno subs to this, you know, he submits to this bear hug. It's going to be the first submission of his career. Well, wouldn't that be the first submission to any bear hug that any of us have ever seen? <laughs> Other than that, I mean, the crowd was hot for it. Um, it was, it felt momentous. Um, and it was, you know, it was more like the way the crowd reacted to it and the momentousness versus what they actually did in the ring is what made it great. Vincent, this is, again, this is why I love having, I love having you on the show, period. But I love having someone who, you know, just didn't grow up in this era. Uh, the bear hug was a legit finisher in 1978. Um, Ivan Koloff was still using it. Ivan Putski was still using it. I don't think Bruno had guys actually submit to it. It, you know, it became you're like the sleeper in the 80s. Like, you know, you know, knew the match was going to end in the sleeper. It never did. And we were moving towards that, but it's, some guys still use the, the bear hug as a finisher and really a properly applied bear hug, not the way you see it in pro wrestling, but on the mat, you know, would be the end or could be the end of a legit fight. And believe it or not, if you have Bruno Sammartino and superstar Billy Graham in 1978, Hand on my heart, Vincent, they had to do a test of strength. They had to. Otherwise, people would have missed it. They, they wanted to see those two strong men battle it out in the test of strength, which makes no sense. But that was just the way of the, the, the lay of the land in pro wrestling uh, back in the day. Steve, your thoughts on this match? 
Well, well, a couple of thoughts. Uh, one, I'll take it way back to a month before this. Uh, and I was watching the New York show at midnight. I'm sure you were watching it in Boston, John. Um, it was just your standard episode of uh, WWF wrestling, but at the beginning, Vince McMahon is standing there and he's got a big smile on his face and then comes on Bruno San Martino wearing a suit and he hadn't been on TV in about a year, like you said. And they announce him as the new announcer, the new color guy on the wrestling, and he's excited to be there to announce matches, which he had never done until that time other than maybe a one-off before. And, uh, of course, right after that introductory deal with Vince, Vince is there holding the mic and talking about next month's big card at Madison Square Garden. And he talks about there's going to be a double main event, uh, Ernie Ladd going up against Bob Backlund, and, of course, the return of Bruno San Martino against superstar Billy Graham. So, that was a really exciting uh, time for us, you know, fans. Uh, I mean, John and I had only been watching for two or three years, but you now this is a homecoming. This is Bruno San Martino coming back. It's, you know, like uh, a big, big, big deal for us fans at the time. And uh, so to, to actually see the match, and I've seen it, you know, of course, years gone by, and I just watched it this weekend. I didn't really think it was one of the better Bruno Superstar Billy Graham matches. It just, it just seemed like, uh, you know, like if you're watching the Eagles on tour, uh, it, it may be just like some of their greatest hits thrown together really quickly. Uh, you did need that test of strength in there, you know, whether there was any logic to it or not. I think that these, these two old pros, uh, Bruno and Superstar, they knew that Napolitano and after were there, you know, right, uh, close to where they were. And, and they knew that those test of strength shots were, were super for the magazines, whether it was on the cover or inside. And you had to have those test of strength deals. I didn't think it was a great match, but just to have Bruno back in the garden and um, Superstar would only be around. I think he wrestled Dino Bravo on the card the following month, and then he was off to his kind of his exile. Uh, Bruno wrestled uh, about 40 dates for WWF the following year, and you know he had that feud with Volkov later on. And then, of course, in January or February of 1980 was when the deal with Zabisco began, so this whole uh, transition into broadcasting for Bruno really uh, kind of opened up some opportunities for him to wrestle sporadically. I liked this match. I thought it was a really good match. I wasn't expecting uh, Tiger Mask against Dynamite Kid. <laughs> I, I thought it was a good match for what it was. And, and like Vincent, I really loved the finish. It looked as authentic as as pro wrestling could be. Superstar Billy Graham is busted open. He's got blood pouring in his eyes. Uh, he's swinging and missing at Bruno. He obviously can't see. The referee is checking him out and kind of warning him, hey, if you, you know, I might need to stop this match. And finally, it was just apparent that the blood was pouring into Superstar Billy Graham's eyes, and the referee had no choice but to to end the match, to have Superstar Billy Graham fight another day. I know there are corners. And John, if I if, if, yeah, sorry, if I can add, I mean, with with respect to that finish, I mean, imagine if how different wrestling would be the trajectory if that kind of refereeing, you know, stood the test of time, and and that's the kind, you know, like if instead of Macho Man dropping five elbow drops on an opponent. He had to sneak it in on, you know, maybe he could do it in a cage match or a Texas death match or when the referee was knocked out or something. And maybe his hip wouldn't have given out in the late 90s. I mean, how many other wrestlers, you know, if we didn't have, we didn't hotshot all the the high flying moves, how many other wrestlers wouldn't have to take so many painkillers and how much more of a pop would you get from the crowd from a guy even just climbing up to the top rope, you know, 
instead of instead of what we've had historically. So I kind of really like that finish. It kind of makes me imagine like what the world could have been like and how different things could have been. Um, and if I could just mention two other things, you know, Steve, you mentioned something about the the cameraman being there. It was kind of cool where you can hear um, Superstar at one point. I think he had Bruno in a headlock, and he and they're all taking they're standing up taking pictures. He says, "Put this on the cover. Put this on the cover." <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Which is a very and, and you can tell that's coming from the heart from like you know Billy Graham, who was kind of a you know a kind of the kind of character that he was. It wasn't just him being the superstar Billy Graham character that was him just trying to be like, I'm still the headliner. I should right. still be the champion. Mm-hmm. I'm still the, the, the one that's like leading the show. And then a very miscellaneous note There's a point early in the match where you could tell it's kind of an accidental bump where like Bruno does, does like the strong man push-off spot onto the superstar and he bumps into the referee and the referee just shakes it off. And it's like, damn it referee for the, for the sake of the business, can you just pretend to be hurt because of all the other, you know, times that we've had a rough bump or like the slightest thing knocks them the, sh- the hell out, you know, it's like, but now like, when it's an accident, you're fine, you know, and it's a true accident as opposed to when it's like a planned accident. I actually booked a match where there was a ref bump and the match continued and the referee recovered and every, no one could believe it. Like, oh my God, the, you know, we're, we're, someone's, the, the heel is supposed to run in as soon as the ref goes down. It's like, no, I had the ref get up in about 30 seconds. So, um, yeah, I thought overall it was, it was a good show. I didn't, it wasn't a great show, but I thought it was a good show. I didn't feel guilty watch asking either of you to to watch it. Vincent, what were your thoughts on the, the show overall? Um, you know, it, it's hard for me to gauge what I should be, you know, judging it against because I'm trying to judge it on the scale of 1978. Um, it's like at that time, it would have been a big show and you would have been excited to see the main event of the world title being defended by, Bag, by Bob Backlund and you would have kind of Got your money's worth. It didn't, what didn't, was not a screw finish, which was like rare for that time. You know, usually like you protected the heels, as you mentioned. It was odd that Ernie Ladd just took a clean pin and whatever the story was there is a separate issue, but it was kind of, you know, kind of unique that it was just a clean pin. So just by that alone, you feel like you got your money's worth. And then, like we said, with the, you know, with the finish with, you know, Bruno Superstar, like it was also not a screw finish. Like he kind of kicked his ass and, the referee just said, okay, you're not defending yourself. I'm just going to call the match right here before you get injured worse. So I, I feel like I got my money's worth with, with, you know, so as an event overall, I'm trying to think in terms of like a, as a person attending at that time, I'd feel like I got my money's worth. Excellent. And before I ask Steve what he thinks, th- there are people on the internet who are like, you know, anytime there is a match that does not end in a pinfall or a submission, it's something to complain about. And this match was the absolute greatest example of that not being true. That, you know, Bruno Sammartino, whether it had, whether or not he pinned him or made Graham submit, he absolutely went out there and kicked superstar Billy Graham's ass and the, and the ref had to stop it. Steve, your thoughts on the card overall? Um, it, it was exactly what it needed to be, I think. I think that they promised this kind of a special card. You're going to see the return of Bruno. You're going to see a, a real great championship match with uh, Ernie Ladd against Bob Backlund. And we also have a, 
you know, one of the top tag teams, uh, of Strongbow and Maivia, uh, teaming up against the Lumberjacks. And that really threw a complete curveball into the whole proceedings. Uh, you did see the fans, uh, some fans were throwing stuff in the ring a little bit, like, looked like maybe some, uh, uh, rumpled up, uh, soda cups were being thrown into the ring when, uh, they felt that Strongbow got screwed in that match. But, uh, that definitely uh, added to the heat, and I'm sure later that night when uh, Howard Finkel announced that the main event of the next Big Garden show would be Backlund against Maivia, I'm sure that popped the crowd, and I'm sure a lot of people got in line to buy tickets for the following month. I agree, and I, I personally thought it was a good show. It was, I mean, basically it was filler, on except for the two main events, which was you know Bruno and Graham and Backlund and Ladd, and if you make everything special, you can make nothing special. If you retire everyone's number, it doesn't matter if you retire everyone's number. So they made those two matches stand out just the way they should have. And I always say this, the hour goes by so quickly here on Stick to Wrestling because we're always having fun hanging out talking about wrestling. Vincent Waller, thank you for once again joining us. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. I also want to thank Steve Generelli for once again doing a great job on the podcast. Steve, thank you. Well, thank you, John. Uh, it was really a fun show, and I think Vincent added a lot to it. It's like you said, it's great to hear uh, somebody's point of view who didn't live through it, and uh, he brought a lot of interesting points that uh, we didn't know about. No, ab- absolutely. I think, you know, sometimes I will ask someone to be on a show, and they'll be like, I know nothing about <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, that's what I want. I want a fresh perspective. You know, I have been kicking around this uh, this show for 45 years, the Maivia turn, what happened with Ernie Ladd, what happened with Crusher Blackwell, Victor Rivera, etc. And it, it's good to have someone, you know, walk in and see the room for the very first time. I want to thank Brian Last for giving us this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does uh, producing this show. And I want to thank everyone for listening. We'll be back next week. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. No go Vols. They don't play this weekend. This concludes our podcast day. 